Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, November 15th, 2021. On the show today, news, listener questions, and in our main segment, Jim Hill celebrates the 20th anniversary of the opening of the Villas at Disney's Wilderness Lodge. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that when your dentist asks, when was the last time you flossed? The correct answer is not, dude, you were there. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? When you floss, do you use that like little instrument thing, that weird sort of J-shaped thing you're supposed to put the, the floss in? Have you seen these things? That they're, they're- no, I haven't. It's like a, like a crutch for floss. Basically, you can use this tool to get in deeper, and it's easier than you know, trying to get into spaces with a string of floss. The problem is we keep having them disappear at the house, and near as I can figure, the mice in the basement are setting up an orchestra. <laughs> and what did it do? I keep waiting to hear dozens of stringed instruments playing at the same time. The funny thing about losing stuff is when Hannah was growing up, she used to lose hair ties. Mm-hmm. You know, when you put your hair in a ponytail all the time. Mm-hmm. And I was always trying to figure out, like, where do they go? Mm-hmm. And now that I've you know got long hair and I'm using hair ties, I'm losing one a day. Like, I don't know what happens to them. Wow, it's that alternate dimension where the one sock goes. I know, it's, it's crazy. Oh, I want to <laughs> see this warehouse. <laughs> All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Goofy Pal, Jessica Oaks, and Andy Shelb. And long-time subscribers, Hang the Code, Dave Click, and Gary and Michelle Cochiarella. Jim, these are the folks who have the rum and chickens concession inside Pirates of the Caribbean, ensuring a revenue stream for years and years to come. True story. Does anybody know any rum and chicken recipes? Because I would imagine there's a market right there. I think in the Caribbean, there has to be some sort of uh, confluence of those two things, right? Here's hoping. All right, Jim, let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish Podcast. For your worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. Jim, the big news mm-hmm. is coming out this week is Disney's earnings call, which happened on Wednesday. And the big takeaway from that was Bob Chapek announcing around 33% of park guests are now paying for Genie Plus. What do you make of that? That dropped middle of October. October 19th, yeah. So we're only operating off of 10 days of data, 14 days of data. Yeah, that, he might have had, he had less than two weeks. Yeah, uh, maybe he had right at two weeks, but yeah, you know. I'm kind of intrigued at how solid that number actually is. But let's see if they talk about this at the next earnings call and see if that number holds. My question was whether that 33% included individual lightning lane attractions mm-hmm. and Genie Plus or uh, both of them combined. Or so like either one of them individually or both of them together. Yeah. Because I could see a bunch of people paying for like Rise of the Resistance and nothing else. Uh-huh. Definitely going to be interesting to see how the, you know, if they break these numbers out and what they say. And that was my next thing. Like, could Bob Chapek legitimately explain the difference to analysts between Genie Plus and individual Lightning Lane attractions? I do not think at this time people would. <laughs> no, he's a, not not trained on the nuances of that. It's a differentiation that even cast members in the park sometimes have trouble explaining to guests who are there. And, and the notion of doing this as part of an earnings call, it's like, hang on, let me get the whiteboard. <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me draw this out on a sheet yeah. of paper for you. So, the, uh, the other uh, thing that made the rounds on social media coming off of 
Disney's earnings call was that Disney says that they can save money by making food portion sizes smaller, which mm. Disney portion sizes are large, generally large to begin with. Mm-hmm. Cutting in the portion size, probably not, not a, a huge issue. But the way it was presented, Jim, mm-hmm. saying that the, a few guests could use the slimming effect on their waistline or something like that, I'm guessing that fat shaming the guests probably not the leadership behavior that Disney wanted to exhibit on that call. You? You just sense after the earnings call that they break out the tasers and the whip and they take Bob back to the PR room. And it's like, we went over the script. Okay. (laughs) Don't go off script. No improvisation. Did we learn nothing from the Scarlett Johansson situation? It's like, you know, like, okay, hey, that's in the rearview mirror. Oh, now we're fat shaming. Good. Good to hear. Yeah. I mean, it's been been a couple of weeks. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, Other news, Jim, uh, character greetings. Uh, are returning this week mm-hmm. to Hollywood Studios where we get Minnie Mouse at Red Carpet Dreams. That's on Friday, November 19th. And also same day, Mickey Mouse returns to Epcot at the Disney Pixar mm-hmm. Short Film Festival. So that's good. So we get Mickey and Minnie back. That's good. You were mentioning about meet and greets, celebrities, that sort of thing at, at the parks. Are you following this thing that they're doing for tomorrow? I mean, I I guess we'll talk about it show after this, but the Disney Plus Day stuff that they're doing over at the studios? So this is a thing where Disney Plus subscribers get into the park early? I saw it, and to me it was like Disney Plus trying to do something like Amazon Prime Day, mm-hmm. but in the parks, and and it seemed like they were trying too hard. But what were the uh, what were the benefits? So if you're a Disney Plus subscriber, you get you get into the studios, uh, I guess for early theme park entry. Yeah, and and supposedly there will be celebrities, folks who are are going to pop up in films and TV shows over the coming year that will be appearing in the park. The more interesting thing is, did you see how they're, they're going to denote the day that at least for some of the evening, the Tower of Terror will be bright blue and with a, a Disney Plus logo projected on the side of it? I saw that episode of The Twilight Zone, sure. That's what I want to see on my vacation. It's like, hey, I haven't given Disney enough of my money. Hang on. I, let me fish out a few bucks for Disney Plus, too. You wonder how much Tums they have to buy for the Imagineers <laughs> who are constantly stressing about theming and place setting and stuff like that. The upside is it is only a projection. It's only for a day. There you go. You turn off the lamp, it goes away. So Fair enough. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's do a couple of listener questions. Here's one from Mallory. He says, uh, my sister and I have been discussing how there seems to be a rise in Disney personal shoppers, eBay resellers, scalpers, whatever you want to call them. One of my sister's coworkers was at Walt Disney World during the 50th and said that he was too scared to go into the shops on Main Street due to the crowds. On social media, you could see absurd lines for popcorn buckets and fights for the blue 50th Starbucks cups. While I remember resellers being an issue five or seven years ago, it seems to have gotten worse. Since the two items per person limit seems not to be working as people are finding workarounds, what should Disney do to combat this? My sister and I are planning on going to Walt Disney World in January for Festival of the Arts, and we're more than a little concerned about resellers causing safety issues. So, uh, Jim, I don't know if if you saw this news as well, but it looks like Disney is starting to cancel annual passes of people who they find uh, violating the uh, sales limits around um, merchandise purchases. Yes, and we don't need to name names or get into specifics here, but earlier this week, 
at least one of the, the more notorious uh, resellers got stomped in a big way. It's one of those things you wonder is, is Disney finally trying to send a message or with all the stories about supply chain issues and that sort of thing, the fact that these folks were swooping in and grabbing up items and then, you know, reselling them at considerable markup on eBay and other channels. Yeah. This may be Disney finally trying to level the playing field. But between the, what you've heard about annual pass holders who are caught doing this and the very public thing that went on earlier this week, it's going to be very interesting to see going forward what happens here. Right. Because the uh, the annual pass merch discount is, what, 10 or 20%, depending on the thing you're buying, right? Yeah. Yeah, so if you're reselling it at full price plus a small service fee, twenty percent of a large number is still a large number, right? It is, it is. But at the same time, I, I understand that Disney at least wants to give people the benefit of the doubt. Disney through the annual pass program and whenever you use that to get a discount, they know exactly what you purchased. And so the yeah. whole the notion is, okay, you're you're buying a lot of Funko figures. It's like, well, I have a big right. family and they love this stuff. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, I think I think what they're doing is going behind the scenes and mm-hmm. looking at a pattern of purchases. Like if you wanted to buy six Christmas sweaters for your six nieces and nephews, mm-hmm. Disney's not gonna probably not gonna enforce the two person limit for you on that. But if you're trying to buy 15 snow globes, yeah. right, Disney's going to say, mm, that might be an issue. And if they see it happening over and over again, that's when uh, that's when you might get a contact from them. Absolutely. Okay. Here's a note from Jim who says, I've used the Touring Plans room request feature many times. It's a great service, but more times than not, I don't get the room I requested. This got me to wondering, if you're doing a room request, do you think it's better to use mobile check-in prior to making the request, on the same day as making the request, after the request has been made, or to check in in person? Thanks for the show. It constantly helps me be the most knowledgeable Disney person in the room. I think, Jim, you need to get out more. Let's see more people. <laughs> Nancy was just saying the same thing. Hey. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> We're dueling gyms. It's a gymnasium. Okay. There we go. All right. So um, the first thing about room requests is we think it works around two-thirds of the time for regular rooms and about half the time for DVC rooms, maybe a little bit more. According to our friends at Disney who do this for a living, there's a couple of reasons why room requests can't be accommodated. One, and the primary one is somebody's already in the room that you're asking for. So there are some rooms in Walt Disney World that we know that Touring Plans users have requested more than 500 times in the past few years. And there's a few rooms that have been requested more than a thousand times. So the odds of getting those rooms are pretty small because they're known to be good rooms and there's a huge number of people that are trying to get in at any given time. By the way, if anyone's interested in knowing what those rooms are, we can do an entire show on it. Ooh, yeah, let's do that. So uh, the poly, it's not even close. Mm-hmm. Like there's, a, there's three or four rooms at the poly that collectively have been requested like 4,000 times. Oh, the second reason that Disney can't fulfill the request is that the, uh, the needs are unclear or that there's too many conditions. So as you can imagine, I've read a lot of room requests trying to help people you know, write these things properly. The best ones are short and contain only the information needed to help pick a room. Remember, there's somebody on the other end of uh, that request whose job is to get through as many of these as possible in a day. So you want to make sure that you are helping them do their job and only doing their job. So something like, I'd like a west-facing studio at the Riviera on floor six or higher. Rooms 8x07 to 8x19 would work. Like I actually did that one today for someone. Hmm. That's two sentences. Very clear, makes sense. 
I've also seen, and this is why I bring it up, I've also seen multi-page emails, including all kinds of information not directly related to the room request, like backstories on everyone in the room, why they're traveling, you know, their hopes and dreams and stuff like that. And again, somebody on the other end has to read this and they're, they're trying to read it for one specific thing to get you the room request. So be as concise um, as possible. The other issue related to this, and this happens more than you'd think, is that people put so many conditions on their room request Mm-hmm. that there's only like three rooms in the entire hotel that would satisfy their needs. So I remember helping someone with a boardwalk in request one time that included a king bed, being close to the elevator, being close to the pool, being close to the restaurants. And that's also quiet. And when we, when we did that, I actually had to call the, the hotel mm-hmm. and talk to somebody there. I'm like, and it turns out that according to their data, there were exactly three rooms in the entire hotel that would have satisfied this particular request. And then, of course, you know, the three rooms have to be available. That's, that's, that's not good odds, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So those are the two things. So be clear, be concise, and always have backup rooms. So instead of saying, I want this particular room with no, um, no alternatives, list a couple of alternatives too. In terms of doing a room request and with mobile check-in, we send the request to centralized inventory management 30 days before you check in. So at any point after that, you can do mobile check-in. The one thing I would say is unless you can exactly duplicate what you say in the Touring Plans email on Disney's mobile check-in, unless you can do, say exactly the same thing, don't give a room request on both Disney's uh, mobile check-in and on the Touring Plans fax. And the reason is, is that the room assigners will look at both of them. Mm-hmm. And if they can't figure, figure out what you want, if you're not consistent in both of them, they won't know what to do and they won't do anything or they'll pick one and not the other, right? So if Disney's room requests don't let you say, you know, fifth floor room at the Riviera, right? If it's more generic, like I want a room that faces the studios, don't do that because when conflicts occur, centralized inventory management doesn't know what to do. Excellent advice. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim gives us the history of the villas at Disney's Wilderness Lodge, which opened 20 years ago today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, Jim, you're going to give us the history of the villas at Disney's Wilderness Lodge. And tying back to our reader question just before the break, my favorite room mm-hmm. at the villas at Disney's Wilderness Lodge is room 5557. Mm. It's the last room, top floor, has an excellent view of the grounds, the lake, and in the distance, the contemporary, where you can see the Magic Kingdom fireworks. Oh, very cool. But 20 years ago, Jim. Yeah. The Villas at Wilderness Lodge opened on November 15th, 2000. Nowadays, we call this DVC resort the Boulder Ridge Villas. That name's a relatively new thing, though, Len. The Villas at Wilderness Lodge didn't officially become Boulder Creek Villas until May of 2016. And that name change was largely done because of construction of Copper Creek Villas and the cabins Mm. at Wilderness Lodge were already underway at that point. Those 26 units became available for DVC members and Walt Disney World guests in July of 2017. Yeah. 
The thinking at the time was something needed to be done to give Wilderness's Lodge's original set of DVC villas a more distinct identity out ahead of Copper Creek's waterfront cabins coming online, and hence the name change to Boulder Creek Villas. So pause there for a second. So mm. if you had to give the name for the entire complex that is on the Wilderness Lodge property, what's the, what's the name? Ooh. Is it the Wilderness Lodge, Copper Creek Villas, and the cabins at Wilderness Lodge, and <laughs> Boulder Ridge Villas? No, it'd be the Wilderness Lodge, Disney's Wilderness Lodge Resort, Boulder Ridge Villas and Copper Creek Villas and the cabins at Wilderness Lodge. Oh. Uh, Is that it? I cannot imagine saying this to a self-driving car. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'm just thinking that like the general manager that works there, does her business card fold in half? Like, does it fold out? Like it Well, I mean, what are the point? Who answers <laughs> the phone at the, in the lobby? You know, it's like yeah. when you have to take <laughs> a <laughs> breath in between. <laughs> this, this huge <sighs> Hello and welcome for, thank you for calling. <laughs> there we go. All um, right. So how is it that Wilderness Lodge wound up with two sets of standalone DVC villas, not to mention how also in 2017, the entire south wing of the, yeah. the original building got converted from regular hotel rooms to what, 158 DVC units? What happened here is the Walt Disney Company makes plans and sometimes makes these plans years in advance and then they don't pan out and which forces the mouse to then course correct. And the road that gets us to Disney's Wilderness Lodge with the villas and the cabins, that actually starts over Crescent Lake, the Epcot area body of water, which is bordered on one side by the Walt Disney with Swan Hotel, which opens its, its doors in January 1990. Likewise, the Dolphin Hotel, which opened its doors on June 4th of that same year. Directly across the way, we have the Walt Disney World Yacht Club, which opened on November 5th of 1990. And then the Beach Club, which opened two weeks after the Yacht Club on November 19th, 1990. All four of them in 1990. Interesting. Four Epcot area hotels opening all within 11 months of one another. This area initially was known as Walt Disney World's Convention Kingdom, but the thinking yep. being that Dolphin and the Swan shared 333,000 square feet of meeting space, and the Beach Club had about a third of that, 110,000 square feet of meeting space. So the thinking was, as of the 1990 holiday season, every major corporation on the planet was now going to look toward Walt Disney World and think, I want to stage my conventions there. To make staging conventions at Walt Disney World at Disney's Convention Kingdom as tempting as possible to major corporations, mm -hmm. the Imagineers did things like building the International Gateway, which would effectively allow conventioners to walk straight out of their meeting and then enter World Showcase, where they could grab a pint at the Rosen Crown or, or sip a glass of wine while strolling around the France Pavilion. Wow. Epcot's International Gateway was such a crucial part of the Convention Kingdom Master Plan. It actually opens on January 12, 1990, the day before the very first on-site hotel, uh, the Swan, opens right. up on the 13th of, of that same month. And that's an interesting design decision because there's no way for Epcot resort guests to walk to the front of Epcot without going through the park. Oh, no, right? As anyone who's, who's ever run the, uh, the Walt Disney World half marathon or marathon knows, mm -hmm. you get dropped off at the front of the park you got to walk through the park to get to, to, to get to the uh, Epcot resorts. Yeah. Especially after 
you've run. I, I remember <laughs> my friend Max Schelling did one of the, the marathons and had really not prepared, but he ran it anyway. And he mm-hmm. did, he was staying in one of the Epcot area hotels and he just described, you know, how the event ends and then you, you have your little noshes and your wine and then the after race event ends and you have to make your way back to the hotel. And yeah, your, your, uh, your limbs have started, started to tighten up. Oh, Oh, yes, he described the four-hour walk back to the hotel. <laughs> you know, just sort of, just a little further, just a little further. I can do this. <laughs> We've all done it. We've all done it. It's fantastic. Okay. You, you mentioned the uh, the convention stuff, though, Jim. Do you remember when in the '90s when Disney was all in on attracting convention business that they used to put out individual conference planning binders? for each hotel that were really slick oh, yeah. and really well produced. Do you remember these? Yeah. Well, I know the contemporary uh, had an amazing right. one and the flow, you know, everybody yeah. was, was trying to sell the notion of if you're bringing a convention to town, we can do amazing things for you. Oh yeah. They were really, really well produced. I mean, the, um, they had layouts of all the conference rooms, mm-hmm. all the hotel rooms where you could, um, all the different places, all the different configurations you could, turn the convention space into by moving walls and stuff like that. It was really amazing and really well put together. And it wasn't just outside corporations that would take advantage of this. You know, the, the many was the time when I'd be over like at the grand flow and just, I got in the habit of sort of making the rounds, just walking through the convention center, seeing who was there. And there was the day that I walked by the sign that said, Tokyo Disney Seas Creative Group Meeting. <laughs> See, it was one of these things where it's like, I need a waiter's uniform. <laughs> you know, just sort yeah. of like, hey, it's time for your soda break, and I'll just uh, hang here in the back and take notes. And it didn't work out that way, but it's just sort of like, yeah, they, they, they were using them as well. That's fantastic. Disney was so convinced that the convention kingdom as a concept was going to do hand over fist business that they made additional plans to cater exclusively to the corporate crowd. A key part of this was supposed to be Disney's boardwalk, not the combined hotel and DVC property we know today, but rather an 82-acre entertainment complex that would effectively have been the second Pleasure Island. This land was supposed to have nightclubs, supper clubs, authentic recreations of amusement park rides from the 1930s, including a wooden roller coaster and an antique carousel. And the whole purpose of this second Pleasure Island was to keep conventioneers inside of the convention kingdom, where they'd then spend their per diems drinking and eating as they waited for that night's performance of Noah's Ark, which was supposed to be this new nighttime show that Michael Eisner had somehow convinced Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber to come right for the Walt Disney Company. That was going to be presented out on Crescent Lake between the Yacht and the Beach Club and the Boardwalk Complex every night. And so, very ambitious plan. By the way, on the second and third floor of Disney's Boardwalk, they were supposed to build the very first all-suite hotel at the Walt Disney World Resort. Really? Yep. This was supposed to be one of the most exclusive resorts on all of Walt Disney World property for the first time ever. Guests could stay in among the rides, shows, and attractions. I remember when Roger telling me, you know, what was going to be cool is like you were basically living that moment in Annie Hall where Al V. Singer was in his room, which was under the Thunderbolt at Coney Island. So, you know, oh, right. the yeah. walls would shake. And it's like, really? I'm paying extra for this? It sounds like a great idea, though. Gotta say. Gotta yeah. Say. 
So what ends up happening? The problem can be traced back to the original Pledge Island. Opens May 1st, 1999, but almost immediately runs into operational issues, and largely because of its original form of admission. You go up to the ticket booth and, hey, I just want to go to the Avengers Club. Oh, okay, so you can buy one ticket to one nightclub. Or, you know, it's like, hey, you want to sample? You know, it's like, well, we have a three-ticket offer, and you can get to three of the clubs here on the island. Or you can pay for the all-access, and that'll get you into all six clubs. And it just confused folks. Pleasure Island was doing great on the weekends, but not mm-hmm. so great on the weeknights. In fact, there oh, were really? a lot of weeknights in late and early 1990 when Pleasure Island effectively seemed almost abandoned by 10 o'clock at night. This is when Disney's World's Entertainment team came up with that, it's always New Year's Eve at Pleasure Island idea. Oh, really? That wasn't something that they came up with from the beginning? That was an add-on? No, no, no. I didn't know that. That was how they kept people inside of that Saker Entertainment Complex until midnight. By, hey, hang in there, there's going to be confetti and and yelling. Really? (laughs) Yelling? There's a selling point for it. We'll be screaming later. Okay. All right, so you've got Walt Disney World genuinely strong struggling to find ways to get guests to stay inside of the original Pleasure Island on weeknights. So it, it just really didn't make sense to build a second Pleasure Island just a mile or so down the road to cater exclusively to convention crowds. Because remember, in spite of Disney's best efforts and the presentation books you were just mentioning, there were still going to be weeks out of the year when there'd be no convention groups on property. And it's like you had a second Pleasure Island that was going to stand empty. But here's the problem. They've already cleared the site. All 82 acres are crept. In fact, they had a sign up that you could see from Buena Vista Drive trumpeting that this would be opening in 1994. So what do you do? You have this primo piece of real estate. It's during the same window of time that Disney Vacation Club opens its first on-site resort, Walt Disney World, Oakeed West. By the way, Len, another Boulder Creek situation when Disney World's first on-site DVC opened in December of 1991. That's just what the place was called, the Disney Vacation Club. Its name didn't get changed to Old Key West till January of 1996. Disney Vacation Club also had ambitious plans. In addition to the DVC units, they were going to build at Walt Disney World and Disneyland Resort. There was talk of building a a high-rise luxury hotel in New York City, likewise a Spanish-themed resort along the the Southern uh, California coastline. But when sales for DVC units at Vero Beach and Hilton Head weren't quite what mouse managers would hope for, they they quickly tabled plans for the high-rise hotel in New York. Likewise, the Spanish-themed resort along the California coastline. So now what? DVC decides to retreat to the safety of Walt Disney World property. They want to build another set of of units uh, to sell to guests who are interested in, you know, having their home resort be Orlando. But at the same time, having been burned by Vero Beach and Hilton Head, Disney Vacation Club officials now want some element of safety. They, they want a way to guarantee that should DVC sales once again flag for some reason, this, this mm-hmm. new on-property resort will still somehow manage to make money. So what they then decide to do is take the site that had been previously set aside for the Disney Boardwalk Entertainment Complex. And remember, this is also where Walt Disney World's first all-suite resort was supposed to be built. And then turn it into Walt Disney World's first dual-use property. Disney's Boardwalk, the hotel, not the entertainment mm-hmm. complex, would be one half traditional hotel. That's the Boardwalk Inn, which had 378 rooms available for Disney World guests to rent. 
and one half DVC property. Disney's Boardwalk Villas, uh, 383 rooms for DVC members to reserve. And this unicorn of a property, with which Walt Disney World officials officially started referring to as the resort's first mixed-use hotel, opens in July 1st, 1996, just ahead of Disney World's 25th anniversary. Uh, celebration kicks off in October of that year. Proves to be so popular, the, the mixed-use resort. It's so popular with guests and DVC members who are coming to Orlando to experience that 15-month-long party that Disney then begins looking for other spots on property where they can do something similar. Okay, so they do Boardwalk Villas as a safe bet. Mm -hmm. It's a hit. Yep. And they're like, okay, where else can we do this? All right, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. All right, so they begin looking in earnest around property in early 1998 and quickly zero in on a four-acre site to the southeast of Disney's Wilderness Lodge. This proposed construction site land did have some challenges. It was constrained on three sides by two acres of wetlands, mm -hmm. but it was also just a short walk away from the original resort building, which meant that DVC members who were staying at the villas at, at Disney World Lodge, or excuse me, Disney's Wilderness Lodge, could easily take advantage of all of that the main building's pre-existing amenities, the check-in desk, the pool, restaurants, retail space. And, and that, that's a pattern that, that Disney's repeated over and over again, right? But this is so they did it with um they did it with the boardwalk villas. They did. They did. And and that was the thing, that the notion that you know you can get the benefit for DVC members, but primarily this is all this work was done for the, the hotel. And you mentioned the um the wetlands. Every time I'm over at uh, Wilder's Lodge, you know, I like to walk the entire property. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing for me is that between the villas proper and mm -hmm. the cabins, there's still a strip of wetlands in the middle of those yeah. walkways. Yeah. And apparently it's so full of wildlife or they mm -hmm. get in somehow that Disney's had to fence that off and put up the snakes and alligators warning sign. Yeah. <laughs> in the middle of the property, which tells you again, yeah, I mean, they've really reclaimed that. Yeah. And the story that was told to me is that people would come back from the parks and go to, to walk back to the cabins. And, and it's just sort of like, hey, pal, it's nighttime. <laughs> you know, I'm nocturnal. <laughs> you know, and you look tasty. So it was yes. like, okay, need to put up a fence here. Me versus the raccoons. There yes. we go. Yeah. All right, so the managers went, okay, let's do this. But again, you, you have to kind of justify it. Again, it's Disney. It's all storytelling. So how do you justify the villas at Disney's Wilderness Lodge being built next to the main building? So it's like, okay, backstory is that this five-story tall structure is supposed to predate the seven-story tall a hotel next door. Boulder Ridge is where the workers who built the Transcontinental Railroad were supposed to have stayed. And once work oh. on that transportation marvel had been completed, well, the people who built the Transcontinental Railroad and, of course, the villas at Disney's Wilderness Lodge decided to build the lodge itself. Ah, okay, okay. If you're paying attention, you see echoes of Boulder Creek inside of Wilderness Lodge. You know, for example, Wilderness Lodge is a six-story tall lobby space, whereas Boulder Creek has a four-story tall interior mm -hmm. lobby. Story here is that the construction team that was building the lobby in the main building I had 
viewed the, the lobby in the villas as kind of a trial run. And so it's like, okay, next time we're going bigger, way bigger. And keying off of the transcontinental railway line, well, that's why the, the lobby at the villas at, at Disney's Wilderness Lodge, a.k.a. Boulder Creek Villas, that's why it's got that beautiful display of railroad artwork and yeah. memorabilia. It's a great lobby, but to your point, it's a much smaller scale mm-hmm, mm-hmm. than the Wilderness Lodge itself. But it's it's charming nonetheless. Yeah, and for Disney fan, it's worth making the trip over there just to see the two cars from the Carrollwood Pacific Railroad, that that miniature rail system, and the Walt himself used to run into the backyard of his Homeby Hills home. Yep. All right. So anyway, Felicit Disney's Wilderness Lodge first get announced in, in June of 1998. Ground is broken on this 136 room DVC property on April 14th of the following year. They did this big theatrical thing where they had Walt Disney World cast members dressed as railroad workers. And <laughs> have you ever seen the, the photo of when they drove the Golden Spike? The Golden Spike ceremony. Yeah, yeah. it's a, a classic photograph, right? They recreated that moment only with striking the Golden Strike. That's when they broke ground for the, the villas at Disney's Wilderness Lodge. Nice. The villas themselves open up on November 15th, 2000. We mentioned that earlier. And quickly becomes a hit with DVC members. They they love the, the level of details. And it, you've stayed there, Len. So oh, yeah. it's studios, uh, one and two bedroom villas. Your thoughts on the resort? When it opened, it was uh, great in that it was additional capacity for a resort that was quickly becoming a fan favorite. Like mm-hmm. a lot of people love the Wilderness Lodge. Mm-hmm. The, um, the theming mm-hmm. is the big thing there. I think these days... The Boulder Ridge Villas are the um, most in need of refurbishment in the uh, in the hotel, the most dated uh, of the rooms. Which is not to say they're bad. It's just the other rooms are newer and better, right? No, no, no. I mean, that, that's an acceptable note. Because yeah. didn't they just do a refresh on the soft goods over at the main hotel? Main building. And then, of course, the cabins are new. Yeah. And then the kitchen setup. Mm-hmm of the Boulder Ridge Villas is of the older DVC design, not the newer, more open um, design. So it's a little, it, 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 it's showing the fact that it was built in the 90s. Yeah. 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 I mean, they'll, they'll get a ride to it. It's not a big deal. I, the thing I, I do like is mm-hmm. having the member pool right outside of the, um, the private member pool right there. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to share the main building pool at Wilderness Lodge because that's a nice, quiet little pool right there. I don't know. Absolutely. We've been talking about the whole storytelling aspect. And from the imaginator's point of view, one of the ways they tell you visually that this structure predates the, the main lodge is the roof is a dark red clay color. Hmm. Then says, okay, we, you know, we, we, we built the roof out of the materials we had available here. Whereas if you look across the way, you have the, I, I want to say it's the green, uh, you know, metallic roof. Yeah. The imaginators also came up with a backstory to support the Copper Creek Villas uh, and the Cabins at Wilderness Lodge, uh, which, again, we mentioned opened uh, July of 2017. That also ties in with the mythology of previously established for Wilderness Lodge and the Boulder Creek Villas. So Wilderness Lodge, uh, the main hotel from 94, is based on the Old Faithful Lodge at Yellowstone, the, the version that was up and running circa 1904. And whereas the Transcontinental Railway was completed back in 1869. So we have one set of satellite villas at Wilderness Lodge that predate the main building. So mm-hmm. imagine we're thinking, well, with the second set of satellite villas, uh, the ones that you're building down along the shore of Bay Lake, why not just go with a set of structures that significantly post-date the main building? So 
Hmm. The idea here is as, as they were building the Copper Creek villas and, and cabins at Wilderness Lodge, which key design of this was supposed to marry the, the feel of the Pacific Northwest with an air of rustic elegance. But the team that was working on this is supposed to be a modern era construction crew. These folks are far more conscious of the, uh, the ecological impact that this construction project is going to have on the Bay Lake area than the crews that had previously worked on, on Boulder Ridge and the main lodge building. So whenever possible, the people who were working on these 26 lakeside units would reuse and recycle material that they found while building the Copper Creek pillars and cabins at, at Wilderness Lodge. So say, for example, if they came across an old railroad spike while they're digging a foundation for a cabin, these folks would then take that railroad spike and turn it into a coat hook that would be used oh, inside yeah. the building. So there's a lot of found objects in the Copper Creek and the, the cabin is Wilderness Lodge. I mean, for example, when you're sitting down to the dining room table and you look up and there's that chandelier that has a giant cog in the middle of it, the idea here is, well, that cog came out of the long since rusted giant crane that was used to lift the timbers in place to build oh. the main hotel next door. Likewise, the weird little bits of broken glass that you sometimes see on, on the light fixtures inside the Copper Creek things, that material was supposedly harvested, recycled out of the trash heap that once sat between Wilderness Lodge and Boulder Creek. That's a great little backstory. It is, it is. And it also kind of reflects our more climate change conscious times. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Makes me kind of wonder what sort of backstory the Imagineers were intending to give reflections on a Disney lakeside resort. Oh, this is where uh, the construction crews retired to. <laughs> because it, it sounds like a retirement village, right? This is where we put them out to pasture. There we yeah. go. No, probably, probably not the backstory that they were going with. This DVC property yeah. was supposed to be built basically right on top of where River Country, Walt Disney World's first water park, had been built. And so... You got to wonder what sort of found objects would have showed up as part of that resort. Here's a light fixture made out entirely of copper tone bottles. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. If we go all the way back to the original announcement of Reflections, a, a Walt Disney Lakeside Lodge, that 900 room resort was supposed to open in 2022, Len. Oh, really? Yep. Yeah. They've got 13 months, Jim. And just for all you folks out there who, who you know, are Noses are somewhat bent out of joint by the whole Splash Mountain getting a Princess and the Frog redo. This hotel was supposed to have a Princess and the Frog themed restaurant. Oh, really? Was it? Yeah. I, I, I yeah. didn't think I caught that. Yeah. Oh, that's super interesting. But as of August 20th, a year ago and two mm -hmm. months, three months, Disney pulled down all of the artwork and references yeah. to this resort. And at this point in our post-pandemic world, or verging on post-pandemic, no word about whether or not this project is ever going to get revived. They've done this site prep for it, but I think that's where they uh, they stopped. Mm -hmm. You can still see the, uh, the the effects of the site prep oh, when yeah. you're standing at the uh, the Boulder Ridge Villas, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you can uh, you can still see where the land was cleared. Yeah, that's super interesting. But I'm just always fascinated with this after the fact storytelling, where you know you yeah. you open one hotel in 1994, you open a second hotel. In 2000, and your job is selling the idea. Oh no, 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 no! We built this one long before we built that one. I really like the uh, the cabins a lot. I like them better than the um, 
uh, Polynesian bungalows. Mm-hmm. They're beautiful. It's a good resort. Done. Absolutely. Yeah, Wilderness Lodge yeah. is a really good resort. Yeah, and it mm-hmm. looks really good lately. So they've, mm-hmm. they've done well. Fantastic. Good show, Jim. Okay. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including live shows Jim and I have just recorded in all four Walt Disney World theme parks. On next week's show, Jim talks about the most controversial ride opening in Walt Disney World history. Oh, and I was there for it, too. You can find more of Jim at JimHillMedia.com and more of me, Lend at TouringPlans.com. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who will be showcasing his short film about collecting Legos, titled Another Brick in the Hall, at the Anchorage International Film Festival on Saturday, December 4th, entirely online this year. For tickets, visit AnchorageFilmFestival.org. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and Radar Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.